0: Hi, mining community. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep the Mining Podcast. And today's guest is rohitish Darwin, who's the president and CEO of International Council on Mining and Metals, for a leadership organization whose vision is working for a safe, just and sustainable world that is enabled by responsible produced mining and metals. Ro is passionate about the transformation power of mining. Uh, particularly in the emerging markets where he spent two thirds of his life. He has a Bachelor's of Commerce in the Economics and a Master's in Environmental Change and Management and worked for the likes of KPMG and Eurasia Group uh, before joining ICMM. Rose spoke at the recent London Indaba, so I approached him to talk uh, more about the, the subject that he was talking about there um and what actually i see i see mm does and how mining companies can improve on a number of sub- subjects and topics which we're going to speak about so that's welcome Rohit, to the podcast how you doing hey rob i'm well please call me ro we're friends man. Ro. okay Ro. that, that makes it a lot easier so as as i mentioned i saw you um i saw you at uh, london uh in Darber um where you were speaking there um, via via satellite um and yeah so i just and um, here's the reason why i wanted to approach you because i thought some of the topics that you that you discussed was 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 really important and and i think the mining community obviously where this podcast goes out to needs to know some more of this information so um i just want to just tell us a little bit about your your career about your background uh before we go into Uh, more detailed topics.
1: Hey, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the podcast. Think you're doing a great job. And thanks for surfacing some of these important topics. So look, Rob, at my heart, I'm a person who believes that mining can be an enormous force for good in the world. I say that from the point of view of having grown up in India in a relatively poor family. I say relatively poor because we were lucky to have a roof over our heads at all times, which is better than many people have it but you know, there were many, many weeks in our childhood where we didn't know where our next meal was going to come from. There was no money for school fees. There was no money for more than just the very basics and sometimes not even that. Uh, and I say that because when we see countries in which mining happens, I see people that are in the same situation as my family was and much, much worse. And when I sit back and think, what is a possible way out of relative and absolute poverty for people, particularly in developing countries, I can't think of a more compelling answer than responsible mining. You know, mining happens in parts of the world that few other sectors will ever touch and creates economic opportunity at a scale and at a pace that few other sectors can ever achieve. And so my whole career has been about trying to find avenues to make big business be the force for good that I know it can be. But in doing that, Rob, I've also come to learn and understand that when we don't operate safely and responsibly, particularly us as miners, given the nature of our business, not only do we fail to achieve the good that we are capable of, but we actually can cause some very significant harm. And maybe that's an uncomfortable thing to say, because we know that generally the world is suspicious of mining and may have a Uh, kind of unfavorable reputation of the industry. So I've heard people say to me, well, Ro, you really ought not to be talking about some of these negative aspects, because when we have others telling us all these bad things about us, why would we say bad things about ourselves? But Rob, it, it takes me back to the one really important thing I've learned through this job at ICMM in particular, which is that if we want to have a different relationship with society, we need to face up to and sit With the uncomfortable reality and perception that people may have of us. Whether that's founded or not founded is almost immaterial. We will get to that at some point. But you know, if Rob, you and I met and you didn't like me, and all I did was tell you all the reasons why you should like me, you would probably leave that meeting feeling worse about me. Whereas if I took the time to understand why you don't like me and talk to you about that, maybe there's a chance that I could change your mind. So, at the moment, Rob, we're on a mission as an organization, and I'm on a personal mission to try and change the relationship between society and the mining industry, because we know that the future of the entire world, frankly, depends on our ability to grow mining at pace in order to power the energy transition. But Rob, I can't see that happening if we don't fundamentally fix what I see as a trust deficit between society and our industry.
0: Yeah, very true. Um So why don't you just tell us a little bit about the ICMM? Um, What is it? Why does it exist? Who's in it? Etc. Let me answer that by telling you what it is not. (laughs) It is
1: not a trade body. It is not a lobby group. It is not an organization that goes out and lobbies for the commercial interests of its members, which is what you might think a group like ICMM is. In fact, it is a group that, of companies, 25 in total, that have self-identified as wanting to be leaders in responsible mining practices. And our role is to use the power of positive peer pressure and positive cooperation to raise the standards for responsible mining. Rob, there is genuinely, I have not come across the equivalent of ICMM in any other sector. It doesn't happen that the chief executives of The 25 largest companies in any sector come together regularly, and in our case, that's three times a year physically and many times virtually, to push each other to raise the standards by which we operate so that the end result is that people see a better, more responsible industry and thus are are prepared to perhaps consider giving it more trust than we currently have. And so, like I said, we don't lobby on behalf of the companies that belong to ICMM. We do not represent their commercial interests. We only, and I say only in inverted commas because it's a big agenda on its own, we only deal with issues of responsibility and sustainability or what some people may call ESG. So in short, you could think of ICMM as the commitment of the world's largest mining and metals companies to sustainable development and the fact that we are voluntarily going to continue to raise the standards by which we operate. And of course, encourage others that are not members of ICMM to do the same. So the 25 that belong to ICMM include the world's largest companies. And these are all names that everybody will be familiar with. Anglo American, Rio Tinto, BHP, Vale, Glencore as the top five, and then a host of others. They are represented by their chief executives in the council so it is tr- truly a leadership organization represented by the ceos and it has a set of mining principles these are 10 principles and they break down into a level of site-based performance expectations that are a condition of membership and they cover the whole host of esg issues so the real power of the organization rob comes from the fact that we are not just talking the talk but we are walking the walk as well so if we make a commitment on an issue like greenhouse gas emissions or diversity and inclusion or human rights, it is a condition of membership that companies in ICMM apply that commitment. It isn't enough just to say, yes, we think these things are important, but somebody else should do them. We're saying, we think these things are important. We're going to take principled action against them and we encourage everybody else to do the same. And Rob, the magic of this group is that we account between the 25 companies for about one third of the global mining industry. We have between us 650 sites in over 50 countries. Now, if anybody is familiar with uh, Paul Pullman, the former chief executive of Unilever, Paul has this great uh, uh, saying, which I, I think is very true, that in any industry, when one quarter of companies decides to move in a particular direction, that quickly becomes the industry norm. And so our task is to get at least a quarter, that's the critical mass, that needs to move before that becomes the norm. Well in our case we have more than a quarter we have a third of the industry in the group. So the power of the group come is in the fact that when we collectively decide to move in a particular direction it can take the whole industry and chart a new course not just for the members that are of ICMM but of course the wider industry and of course those that are members of ICMM do uh, deserve to be identified as those willing to be trailblazers and willing to chart a new course. Doesn't mean Rob, that they always get it right. And in fact, some of the most high profile incidents and accidents in the last few years have happened in ICMM member companies. So I'll be the last one standing here and telling people that ICMM is somehow some badge of great performance that people should just take blindly. Uh, But instead, you should see it as a commitment of its members to take uh, the
0: issues of responsible development and sustainability extremely seriously. Is it a kind of like mastermind group where you obviously have got these influential and people at the top of their game coming together, looking at all the challenges around, obviously, ESG and looking into the future as to how they can become better organisations and the industry become better? And it's like a mastermind where you are talking about these issues and trying to resolve the, the, the challenges and then providing solutions
1: mastermind could sound a little evil. so It's a benign mastermind group in the sense that yeah. it's a group uh, of, truly of, of leaders of their organizations, chief executives who are coming together, putting their competitive instincts at the door. I mean, remember, these are companies that <clears throat> compete fiercely with each other. But when they're in the ICMM room, all of that is to the side. We're here to do Work in the common good, not just in the common good of the industry, but in the common good of society. And people share very openly both about their successes as well as their failures. So, on safety, for example, it is a place where the minute there is any incident that occurs, or even in the absence of an incident, if somebody is aware of either uh, safety practices that are proven to be very effective or are guarding against unsafe work practices, ICMM is the place they will share them. Or when it comes to, for example, a a breakthrough in the engagement with indigenous peoples, you will have the CEO talking passionately about how and why that happened so that their peers can learn from their experience. And the result being that everybody gets better. And Rob, it's so funny because in many ways, now the way the world is headed, these issues of sustainable performance have become a source of competitive advantage. Everybody wants to say, We're the most sustainable company. We're the most responsible company. So even with that pressure, for a group of CEOs to continue to come together and put that aside for the sake of the common good gives me so much hope and optimism that there is real power in principled business leadership. And I genuinely hope that other sectors end up creating an ICMM-type environment for themselves. And they do exist in places like fashion, fashion, Uh, Food has something uh, similar. But this unique combination of being CEO driven and then having accountability because whatever the group decides becomes a membership commitment, is there's something in there. There's a a sort of magic formula in there that can enable progress to happen from within the system in a way that actually I I haven't seen happen in other sectors. Now, Rob, we we absolutely do not get everything right. There are uh, instances where the group has failed to move quickly enough. For example, when the uh, tailings dam collapsed in Samarco in 2016, we did not act fast enough to create a global industry standard on tailings management. That only happened after the second disaster in quick succession, which is Brumadinho. That is a stain on our collective consciousness that we did not end up uh, moving as quickly as we should have. But we've learned from those mistakes. You know, When the Everyday Respect report came out from Rio Tinto last year, which showed really troubling levels of bullying uh, assaults, including sexual assault and harassment across the workforce at Rio Tinto, we resisted the temptation to say, well, that's a issue that is unique to Rio Tinto or an issue unique to Australia. Instead, we said, let's see this for what it is, a signal of a systematic issue that we all need to pay attention to. So I'm pleased to say that we have learned from the mistakes of the past. And you know, despite the group having a huge amount of intellectual firepower, a huge amount of leadership commitment, any group can suffer the possibility of not being able to get everything right and and see around corners. And last thing I would just say, Rob, is one thing we are very aware of as a council is that we do not have particularly good diversity in the group. Um, Up until last year, uh, we had more people called Mark than we had women in the group. Uh, That that has uh, changed now. We have one other a woman in the group, but that is really not good enough um, for an industry leadership group. It's the reality that the chief executives of mining companies are dominated by men, of course, um, but I'm encouraged to see that that's changing from the bottom up. And I hope that in the future, the ICMM table looks very different to what it does today in terms of gender representation, ethnicity, socioeconomic class, etc. But it is truly a, a very special organization.
0: Yeah. Obviously, you can see you're, you're passionate about this. And and I, like I said, I did see you speak as well. And I can see your passion behind what you're looking to achieve. What what drew you to working for the, the ICMM? The
1: fundamental thing that drew me, Rob, and it's the fire in my belly that makes me wake up every day today is a fundamental recognition that the world's future depends on metals and minerals. That's certainly true when it comes to the energy transition, because we know that uh, we have to decarbonize our energy system, electrify our energy system, and anything decarbonized and anything electrified, by and large, means more metal and mineral. And so we have to grow mining at a pace and scale we have never seen before in the history of, you know, certainly since the Industrial Revolution and and before, that is will require a step change in both the way we as an industry perform and in the way that we engage with society. And so my driving force and the reason I think ICMM is such a brilliantly placed organization at the moment and why the industry is so interesting to work in at the moment is we face this huge opportunity to be a major contributor to the world's future. But at the same time, we also face a lot of work to do to give people the confidence that all of those minerals and metals can be extracted responsibly and safely. Because Rob, you know, those of us in the industry who have seen the industry at its best, we would be painting a picture of a world in which increased mining activity generates real good quality jobs in countries where there are few other alternatives for economic development, producing really well uh, managed and produced metals and minerals with very low waste uh, with, Uh, Lots of potential for circularity, and that ultimately the system deploys the kind of supply that the world needs. But let me be clear, Rob, that's only one version of a possible future. Another version of the future is where this growth in mining or this expected growth in demand leads to a free for all, where everybody tries to run around the world digging up holes and doesn't care about responsibility, doesn't care about mining standards. Uh, People who work in those mines could get hurt or die. Uh, There's the potential to have human rights violations, the potential to uh, trample over the rights of indigenous peoples, the possibility of wide scale environmental pollution, tailings dam collapse. And these are all the concerns that people might have about a future of mining that is different to the one that all of us know is possible and have seen. And we have to recognize, Rob, that both futures, the potential for both futures exist in the industry today. You know, I said earlier that our group consists of a third of the industry across 650 sites. That may sound like a lot, but uh, it's worth keeping in mind that globally there are 25,000 mining companies and between them, they operate 30,000 mine sites. So the, the need of ensuring that wherever mining happens is done as responsibly and sustainably as possible has never been greater. Because the scale at which mining is expected to grow at the moment is going to provide an opportunity either for great, great positive value to society and to the environment, or the potential for harm. And here, Rob, I would just say that we have a great responsibility as the leaders in the industry, the biggest companies, to show a new pathway forward, but we can't do it alone. As I say, we can directly affect 650 sites. and. You know, I spend my time, as you saw at the London Indaba, and I, the reason I beamed in was because we were in Brisbane for the World Mining Congress. Like, I spend a lot of my time on the road just spreading the word about these standards of responsible mining, encouraging everybody to take them up, but I can't force anybody to take them up. This is where I need investors and governments and downstream customers to insist that they will not deal with or permit or support mining companies that don't also subscribe to the principles of responsible and sustainable mining Uh, that don't have to be ours, although ours are completely free and available for people to use. But there are many, many good standards out there that people can use, and it comes down to a commitment to use them. And, you know, Rob, just in case anybody's wondering why this is even a worthwhile thing to do uh, for us as a group of 25, why don't we just mind our own business and just stick to ourselves? The reality is, you know, when something goes wrong in mining in any part of the world, it affects us all. Just take last year's collapse of the, uh, or or breach of the Yachersfonsen tailings dam in South Africa. You know, it brought back memories and concerns for people for the dam collapse in Brumadinho and before that Samarco. And people rightly asked the question to say, well, if that tailings dam could collapse, yes, I know that's not an ICMM member. How can I be sure that the tailings dams that we do operate are being done as safely as possible? So, you know, we
0: really are in this together. Um. I've heard you obviously speak about trust in the industry before. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you feel trust is and why it's such a, so uh, an important issue for mining, um, and what the current state of trust is within our industry? Rob, you're now we're now we're getting to the real meaty stuff. This is
1: really important and very personal to me. This idea of trust in companies or industries can actually be so hard to get your head around when we all know what trust is in our personal relationships. I mean, Rob, if I was to ask you, do you trust me? I would be asking you basically the question, are you sure? And can you predict my future behavior? That's what trust is. Trust is our ability to predict the behavior of somebody else into the future. And so when we say that there is low trust in a company or low trust in an industry, what we're really saying is people cannot accurately predict our future behavior. And so when we think about the mining industry, when people hear that we're going to have to grow mining at 10-fold or 20-fold or 50-fold for certain commodities, the lack of trust plays out in the fact that people cannot predict how we're going to mine and how we're going to behave when we grow mining at that rate. And what the world we want to be in, the the outcome that I'm seeking, is a world in which everybody can predict that when mining grows at the rate it needs to grow, that we are going to do that responsibly and sustainably. Robert, we just have to swallow hard and accept the fact that that is not true today. I know some people will say to me, oh, but in my very specific site in this country, the local community and stakeholders really trust mining and they trust me to do the right thing. If that's true, Wonderful you are in a minority because by and large across the world levels of trust in our industry are low now that's not just my impressionistic view you know it's supported by my conversations that i have around the world it's actually backed up by data so uh, the data that shows this is put together by a company called globescan of many others there are many other organizations that do this but just take globescan as an example a very well respected global polling organization For the last 20 years, every year they have asked people in 33 countries around the world, including most of the major economies, to rank different sectors with the question, to what extent do you believe these sectors fulfill their responsibilities to society? Now, in 2021, Rob, when there was all this talk of critical minerals, when everybody was starting to realize how important mining was, mining was last in that list. We were below oil and gas. And it gets worse because not only were we last and below oil and gas in that list, we our score was the lowest it had been in 20 years. So something bizarre is going on. Just when the world needs mining and is looking to us to provide these critical minerals, trust in our industry appears to be at an all-time low. As I say, some regional variations. So for example, trust in Canada appears to be uh, slightly higher than the average. Trust in Chile appears to be slightly higher than the average, but by and large, the global picture is very hard to argue with. And maybe somebody's listening to that and saying, oh, but okay, I don't trust pollsters. Okay, stop somebody on the street tomorrow who know who you know nothing about and who knows nothing about you and ask them, what do you think about mining? What do you think is the answer you're going to get? I I don't think you're going to get particularly positive adjectives. And then, Rob, we're also seeing this low trust play out in other uh, areas as well. So, for example, the number of people that are looking to work in mining, something you will know a lot about. Around the world, we're seeing staggering drop-offs in the number of mining graduates and people saying they're going to work in mining. So a recent study by McKinsey just a few months ago showed that three quarters of people they asked, young people they asked, said they definitely won't or probably won't work in mining. Now you might say, okay, well, that's just their, you know, as as uh, economists would say, their stated, stated preference. What is their revealed preference? What do their actions tell us? Well, what the actions tell us is that in Australia, the number of mining graduates has fallen the order of 60% between 2014 and 2020. The number of graduates in the United States or the number of qualified mining engineers in the United States has fallen by a quarter over a similar period. And the same story repeats itself over and over again. And then, Rob, here in the UK, we've had four universities ban mining companies from recruiting their students on campus on climate change grounds. Now, we might say, well, that's a terribly stupid decision. And it is a stupid decision. But let's remember where what that's coming from. Why is that happening? It's happening because of a lack of trust in our industry, a lack of confidence that we put responsibility and sustainability at the heart of everything we do. And so trust me, Rob i you know i would love to not believe this information i after all you know i get the privilege of leading an organization that is there to improve the relationship between mining and society so one way people should view these results is that i've been an absolute failure in my job that i've been here for the last two and a half years because of the 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 results the way they are but i'm also very optimistic because i see huge potential for change i see new uh, areas of growth and opportunity and co-development that is making a difference to trust in our industry. Um, So, you know, from incredibly um, uh, energizing new ways of engaging indigenous people in Canada, in Chile, through to zero waste mining that is leading the charge on circularity, we are seeing how that is changing the relationship between mining and society. But when it comes to trust, we still have a
0: very long way to go based on that what actions is the industry taking or do you think the industry should take to address obviously this trust deficit um you've obviously just explained now it could be around branding uh, which i might ask that in a separate conversation or a separate question um but what yeah what actions uh should the industry be taking um from your from your perspective from a from a trust from a trust deficit.
1: Let's definitely talk branding, but let me give you my early view on that anyway, Rob. It is fashionable and has been part of our conventional wisdom in the industry to say that mining has a PR problem, that we actually need to fix our image, our brand. I don't believe that. Yes, we could probably do better at communicating what we do and have a better image and PR uh, exercise, but that is That is the end of the process. That is the tip of the iceberg. The majority of the work we need to do is actually to consistently perform better on the issues that society cares about. And the result will be that people will see us differently. And actually, Rob, one of my favorite sayings is that when you are good at something, you tell everyone about it. When you're great at something, they tell you. So we might be good at something, don't you think we're good at that? That's a PR campaign. When we get great, people will point to us and say, you are great at that. That is what I'm shooting for, not just getting good at some of the things that we can um, have a PR campaign about. But we'll get into that more. But look, on, on the actions that we are taking and need to take, they span the full range of e, S, and G in the ESG acronym. And to some, that may feel like an overwhelming suite of things. How will we do things on water and climate change and human rights and skills and closure and tailings and the circular economy? Yes, it's a big agenda. But with, as they say, with great power comes great responsibility. And so we have to embrace the fact that changing our relationship with society, building greater trust will need us to work on all of those fronts that I've just mentioned. In fact, for us at ICMM, we work on 12 different areas or 12 different projects that span the host of environment, social, and governance issues. Because each one of them, individually and together, is what drives the perception and the faith and trust that society has in mining. We can't just skip one of those and and expect to have a high level of trust with society. Because what society is saying is, Look, we get it. We need metals and minerals. And and to that point, Rob, I genuinely feel that in the last two years, one of the things we have been successful with is improving the general level of understanding and awareness around the importance of metals and minerals to our lives today and to our lives in the future. I don't think there is a single major government, uh, a single major NGO investor group that doesn't appreciate and understand just how important metals and minerals are. And that's important to recognize, Rob, because it also debunks one of the other aspects of this conventional wisdom we perhaps have had in the industry for the last two or three decades, which is that we just need to educate people more about our industry and why it matters and why what we do is important. Now, there are two problems with that, Rob. The first is it assumes that people are stupid. We should never assume people are stupid. You know, it assumes that we have all this good information and others are just really not aware and ignorant and we must educate them. It's a very it it has a healthy dose of paternalism, which immediately puts people off. The second reason, Rob, why that strategy of educating others, I think, really needs to be reconsidered, is that, you know, our feelings and perceptions about anything, whether that's about mining or whatever, are formed in our heart, in our gut whereas the message about metals and minerals being important to society is a message at the head and if i trace back why despite all our efforts in the last 2 or 3 decades we have not been so successful at moving needle on trust it's because we have aimed our messages at people's heads and not at their hearts and in their gut because that is where your feelings are so it, telling somebody you may not like mining but you need it <laughs> it just doesn't comp- it doesn't hit the right Level, Why, you know, why are we telling people who don't, who may have a bad view of our industry that they need us that actually can sometimes make things worse rather than make things better. And um, so, Rob, overall, I think it takes action on each of the issues we've bro- you know, briefly touched on that drive society's uh, kind of concerns around mining. Uh, and, you know, later we can get into some of the specifics, but of course, the, some of the major issues will be familiar to people decarbonizing our operations. Making sure that mining contributes to a nature positive future, using water efficiently, managing tailings dam safety, uh, promoting circular methods, both in mining as well as in the in the circularity of our products, keeping people safe and healthy at work, creating a diverse and inclusive workplace, uh, having very consistent standards by which we measure performance closing our minds responsibly, right? These are all the things we're going to need to do. And we are working on through the ICMM in order to make progress, which ultimately I think will help us become a trustworthy
0: industry and thus be trusted. Obviously trust is quite an abstractive concept. Um, how can it be measured? Obviously you, you spoke about a pole and mining being at the bottom. How else can we measure trust within our industry? And then also, how can we then improve that measurement or score?
1: So Rob, besides the polling data, which is very useful, but has its own limitations, there are at least two or three other signals of trust in the industry that I think we can pay attention to. One we briefly touched on, which is the number of people wishing to work in our industry. And there, the the past trend has been worrying, but Again, there are some early signs about a change. Rio Tinto, for example, is looking to have its highest level of graduate recruitment this year than they've, that they've ever had. That's a very healthy sign. And I know that's being repeated in other companies too. But let's keep a very close and watchful eye on the quality of people that we are able to attract and the quantity of people that we're able to attract. That will tell us about whether we're doing a good job on building trust or not. Rob, another area to look at would be the level of investor interest and support for the industry. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a very painful thing for us all to see the valuations that mining companies receive relative to other sectors. You know, we may our valuations may be five, seven, in the best case, nine times our earnings. Whereas we know that actually there are other industries who wouldn't survive without mining that are you know, at least double of that, if not more. And I would say that at least a part of the reason why our valuations are not where they should be is because of a generalized lack of trust from the investment community in mining. I mean, to hold mining in your portfolio for many people is to take on a much greater level of risk than they're prepared to take. And there are other reasons that, that affect the level of investor interest in mining, such as The industry was not very disciplined in the deployment of capital in the last decade. And so investors are uh, absolutely wary of uh, what, what our capital discipline looks like. But there is a very healthy dose of a lack of trust in the sector, which has meant that we are not an attractive investment proposition for a number of investors that we should be. And that means that fewer investors are looking at the sector, fewer investors are willing to back it. And that's, again, another signal of the level of trust in the industry. As I say, Rob, this will be changed not by a PR exercise. That is the wrong answer. It is a misdiagnosis of the question. And it is frankly, I think, a bit of an insult to people who have genuine concerns about the industry. Instead, I think it will be solved by demonstrating principled leadership action on the most important issues facing society consistently over time. And that will drive a change in perception of our industry based on performance. At the end of it, yes, there will probably be an element of making sure that people are aware of everything that we're doing. But it starts with those, uh, you know, extraordinary and and perhaps unexpected leadership commitments that we are we need to make and deliver against. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Rob, one from a couple of decades ago and one recent. So. You know, two decades ago, when ICMM was first created, ICMM members at the time made a commitment that we would not mine in a World Heritage site. So no matter how great the need, how rich the resource, we felt there were parts of the world that should stay off limits to mining because they are so precious that we should not risk any harm. Rob, that commitment did more to drive trust in our industry from the environmental community than probably anything we've done in the last 20 years. That shows you... The power of taking principled action. Of late, we've taken other commitments in the last two years that, once again, I think are generating a level of trust and goodwill that we can use and sustain into the future by continuing to deliver on those commitments. So, for example, I believe we became the first industry in the world at our scale, uh, certainly amongst the 25 ICMM companies, to make all our contracts with governments public. Now, we've been long-term supporters of EITI, which is the Extractors Industry Transparency Initiative, which encourages transparency from both governments and companies. But we were the first group of companies, the ICMM members, that said whether or not a government has signed on to the EITI, we will make our contracts public because we believe that's the level of transparency that people deserve. Now, (laughs) you stop somebody and say, did you know that the only industry doing this is mining? That will surprise a lot of people because generally... People who are concerned about mining, what are they concerned about? They say, well, dodgy deals, corruption, uh, you know, not, not very uh, uh, transparent business practices. Well, let's actually take that head on and let's demonstrate that we're willing to go above and beyond to demonstrate good performance. Another one, Rob, we again, once again, I think we'll be one of the first industries, if not the first industry across the scale that ICMM represents to disclose the tax we pay on a country by country basis. So although, of course, all companies will use transfer pricing to optimize tax, we think it's fundamentally important that everybody should know how much tax we paid in different countries. And that's a commitment we've made. And that, again, has the ability to and the potential to make people view our industry, uh, or at least the responsible operators in
0: in the industry, very differently. And we have to keep that up. I want to go back to, obviously, branding and it being an image which you said, you don't think brand has a, it is, or mining as a brand doesn't have a great image. What what can, what would you like mining companies to start doing to maybe not necessarily improve our image, but what are the, and obviously this is a long process. This doesn't happen over a course of a few months. This is ongoing probably for decades. What would you say you want mining companies to do more of to improve, say, the the, the image or the brand of mining? What what would you like to see them doing? Where, what can, for instance, obviously we've got a number of different listeners from different uh, disciplines within the mining industry and working for big, small companies, etc. As a as a community, what can you what can you say to individuals to help? move start that process and move that process along rob there's one thing we can all do irrespective
1: of where we are what we do that will fundamentally change the image and the performance of the mining industry on trust are you ready for it it's it's extremely it's extremely simple it is to listen just listen you know when we think about what we need to do we are sometimes thinking about, oh, we need to do all these things and take lots of action. No, 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 no. Just stop and listen to other people. That's all we need to do. And from there, we'll come through insights that we never knew we had and actions that we never knew we needed to take. I'll give you one beautiful example, Rob. So as we know, when we develop a life of mind plan, uh, we consider the optimum way of extracting an ore body based on the characteristics of the ore body, based on capabilities of a mining company and based on our funding model, right? And that might tell you a rate of production over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years that we have optimized for. Now, that makes perfect sense. But when we engage with indigenous communities, if we were to just sit and listen, the answer to our life of mind plan or the nature of our life of mind plan could change and look very differently. And this is what has happened in Canada. Rob, indigenous communities in Canada have told us in certain situations, we are very happy to have you here, but could you please mind slower for longer? Now to mind slower for longer is not something that would naturally come to us because that is not how we have built mind plans in the past. But if we care about what indigenous communities think of us and their level of support for us, and I hope by now everybody's aware of why that is so important, then just listening to their desire to have mining that happens for a longer period of time over a slightly slower pace can make us think so differently about how we would plan our mine. Now, isn't that just so simple, just to understand what is the vision that the community has for itself What is the place that we occupy in that community? And by listening actively, we might change what we do. It doesn't require anything more than active listening. And there's also a real-life example of somebody who has done this in a project, and that is Anglo-American with their Echo project. There are others too, but I'll just pick on Echo, one of the world's most important copper developments in recent history. You know, Rob, Echo had had received in 2011, I believe, its legal license to mine. It could have gotten started and continued its progress as a project. But they knew at the time that they they did not yet have the full support and uh, kind of uh, engagement from the community that they ideally wanted. So what did they do? They delayed the start of that project by 18 months in order to have what they called a series of stakeholder dialogues in Peru. For 18 months, despite having the legal license to mine, Anglo-Americans spent time understanding from the community, what is it that you want? How can we mine differently in order to meet your needs? What can we do differently? And they changed in those 18 months, the design of the mine. And the result today, Rob, is that Echo, which is in a very complex mining jurisdiction that everybody knows about enjoys a level of support from the community and a a level of connection they could never have hoped to have if they didn't take time to listen and to use those insights to inform what they do. Now, we can all listen. It just takes the ability to recognize that we do not have all the answers. We are not there to tell communities what their lives should be. If we just stopped and
0: listened, some of these insights will come to us. That's, that sounds good. And what and I'm going to just have a slight deviate from that because some people may think that that's great, but then there's going to be some people saying that, especially with companies wanting to increase production, some companies, and obviously we're way behind the eight ball on many commodities to, to obviously get them out the ground. There'll be companies that are obviously listed and they want – obviously to show that they're they're developing their companies increasing production year upon year it's all about getting more tons out of the ground um and increasing those production those production targets now obviously there needs to be some sort of balance there uh with what you've just said so how where is that balance where uh, or does it is there conversations that need to be had where it does suit both parties?
1: Look, of course, there's a balance. And there is no question in my mind that the rate at which new mines are being developed right now is far too slow. It The process is far too cumbersome. And we must find ways to speed up permitting of new mines, not at the expense of standards, but it doesn't have to be at the expense of good standards. You can do a lot of what we're doing. Right now, in a far more efficient and effective fashion, in you know, I, we estimate that for a new mind to actually go from concept to first production, you're probably complying with something like five thousand permitting obligations. I mean, that's it. Probably doesn't need. I, I don't know what the real number is, but it could probably be two thousand or three thousand. But without sacrificing the quality, and so absolutely, I'm not here for a minute advocating that we layer on additional uh, processes or uh, things that take a huge amount of time uh, because there is a lot of efficiency we can gain from the current process. And I'm really encouraged, Rob, by moves in the EU, moves in the United States and Canada to speed up permitting. It is one of the biggest things we can do. And I really am so encouraged by the steps that governments are taking. And of course, I would uh, you know, say that they should continue doing that and working with us to find much more effective, time efficient ways of mining. That will go a long way, Rob, to address the point you're making, which is that we do need to get on with it. And investors are expecting us to get on with it. Uh, So no question about that. One thing that's worth keeping in mind, Rob, though, is, uh, you know, the the Navy SEALs have this uh, wonderful saying that I think we can reflect on. The SEALs, because they operate in these very intense environments, you know, you could be underwater trying to, uh, you know, disable a bomb that's about to go off or something like that. They have a saying that says, uh, slow is steady and steady is fast. And so keep that in mind when we think about when we're tempted to rush something. Actually, taking a little bit of time to do it well now can really help us in later on. And uh, just let's take another example, which we haven't talked about. An issue that is a bit of a elephant in any room when it comes to the mining conversation. And that is the issue of closure. Now, people are concerned that our industry does not have the best record of closing mines responsibly. Uh, And, you know, let's just take a country like Australia, Rob. There are 50,000 abandoned or uh, orphaned mines just in Australia alone. Now, that tells you that our industry has a bad record on closing mines responsibly, right? So we're in the rush to get a new project developed, we may not pay very much attention to closure. We might say, well, that's a problem for 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line. I don't need to worry about that right now. Well, the reality is, Rob, if you don't design your mind with closure in mind, right from the very beginning, the possibility that you can close that mind responsibly is significantly reduced than if you just took the opportunity to build responsible closure in from the very beginning. And It's a classic tragedy of the commons problem, right? If one person doesn't do it, one project developer doesn't do it, nobody's going to notice or know very well because investors aren't asking the right question. I think that's going to change. Investors and governments are going to start to ask much better questions around closure. But if we all don't do it, then, of course, the whole reputation of the industry suffers because you can see a scale of irresponsible closure that none of us would be proud of. And the end result is that building a new mind today becomes harder and harder to do because that reputation persists. So it comes back, Rob, to where we started this conversation about the importance of leadership. And that's why everybody needs to stand up and be willing to be counted and say, I am willing to take these principled actions so that in the future and through this performance, people's understanding and perception of mining will change.
0: Before we started recording, we were talking about copper and a few other commodities. I just wonder if you had any sort of figures around sort of for, forecasting and future demand for some of these critical minerals, uh, metals, etc. Just so we can, I suppose, have more of a perspective of where we are now and where we need to get to. Sure, Rob. Let's take copper.
1: Everybody can relate to it. So we currently produce around 21, 22 million tons of copper a year. We consume 25, 26 million tons. uh, And that gap of around 5 million tons is filled by recycling. Now, the reason we can do that is because copper is infinitely recyclable and doesn't lose any of its key properties. And it's intrinsically valuable. And so people will extract and recycle it. Uh, I mean, to the extent where two thirds of all the copper we've produced Since 1900 is still in circulation today. Um, But actually, when you project out to what our situation in 2050 will look like, we will probably need to be producing in the region of around 50 to 52 million tons of copper in 2050. That means more than doubling our current production. And, you know, uh, some will say that that means producing more copper in the next 30 years than we produced in the last 500 but the way I like to think about it is I spoke about Keveco a short while ago, Anglo-American's project. Uh, to do that, you, the kind of increase I'm talking about, you probably are looking at 60 new, six zero new KFECOs coming on stream between now and 2030. And bringing just one Kaveco on stream has been a huge lift for one of the largest and most successful mining companies in the world, that building 60 of those mines just for one commodity is a, a, indeed a, a massive task ahead of us. One of the reasons, Rob, that's it's a task ahead of us, and this affects not just copper, but other commodities too, is that the ore grades are declining, uh, particularly in copper-rich countries like in Latin America. So in Latin America, for example, on average, uh, copper grades have declined around um, 30% in the last 15 years. So it's getting harder to access um, resources in places that we would have traditionally done them. But... Uh, taking the glass half full perspective on this, Rob, uh, actually some of the waste piles of copper in places like the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, have more copper in them at a higher level of concentration than reserves and resources in places like Latin America. So as technology and economics improve, we will find new ways of extracting resources that are currently sitting in waste piles or in places that we hadn't really thought of as sources of supply. So that gives me hope and confidence that we will be able to find our way through this challenge. But let me be very clear with everybody. It is a huge, we're staring down the barrel of a huge shortage of one of the most critical ma- minerals that is essential to all aspects of modern life. And it's not just for copper, it's a similar story playing out for lithium, cobalt, etc. But you know, just so nobody listening to this leaves with a particularly pessimistic outlook, I would also just point to the potential for human ingenuity to find our way out of these challenges. So, for instance, um, copper is now being substituted in certain specific circumstances by aluminium, which has many of the properties that copper does—not all of them—but can be used in certain applications. So, you know, we will see more of that uh, type of substitution also coming um, to to try and alleviate the shortage. But but it is a big it is a big issue.
0: Yeah. Want uh, to just speak about ESG. And um, when I uh, heard you speak a few months ago, um, you did you did uh, paraphrase that ESG was eat, sleep, and go to work. Where which may uh, obviously sound uh, sound good, but it's not obviously relevant in our in our terms. Um, so what what would you be looking for the industry to do more so around ESG? Um, obviously you're apart from the members of your, um, of your group, maybe some are also members outside of the group. Also, what are you looking for more companies to sort of push forward for, from an ESG perspective? So Rob, the reason I said in many parts of the world, ESG
1: should be seen as eat, sleep and go to work is because I was telling you my personal story of, of growing up with not very much food or, uh, the ability to have meaningful work that's the reality. ESG is something that we in London and New York and other places talk about as a abstract concept, and it can all get very theoretical. But when you think about what responsible business is all about, it's about making sure that people at the very least have good food to eat, a place to sleep and somewhere to go for work. I mean, it's not more complicated than that. And bringing it back to its human essence, I think it's so important, lest we get lost in this alphabet soup and this kind of almost slightly weird theoretical world we can sometimes get ourselves in on ESG. So I just like that to ground us at all times. But when it comes to the the suite of ESG issues, and you asked, you know, where do we as an industry need to focus more than perhaps where we are at the moment? Look, there are a lot of areas where I think we're making really great progress, like on decarbonization. You know, our scope one, two emissions are falling at a very healthy rate and we need to stay the course to make sure that we decarbonize in line with the goals of the Paris Agreement. Our water practices, particularly in Latin America, I think are extremely encouraging and are getting to a position where actually we are going to be in a very water efficient state of operation uh, in, in many cases. Uh, you know, we are making progress on our ability to improve the lives of local communities where we operate. There are great examples of thriving communities, uh, not all, all over, but but some. But Rob, just two or three things to flag as areas we all need to pay more attention to. One is the issue of human rights. Now, on human rights, of course, we would all say zero tolerance for human rights abuses in responsible minors. That should be pretty uncontroversial. But actually, what society is saying and what we need to pay attention to is how do we engage with what are called human rights defenders, You know, people and organizations that are standing up for those whose rights may have been violated? And our industry has not always had a clear position on how we engage with human rights defenders. So that's something I'd like us to be um, paying particular attention to. Secondly, I really hope we can all continue to channel a lot of energy investment and resource into finding ways to mine in a way that significantly reduces tailings production. So while we continue to manage tailings dams safely, it's really important that in the future, we're not mining in the same way we've always mined before, creating a huge amount of waste and uh, you know material that needs to be managed very carefully. Instead, let's find new ways of mining that don't generate significant numbers of tailings. I feel that we have quite a, a ways to go on that issue. And finally, Rob, I would just say that on the issue of nature or what people might have traditionally called biodiversity, we have done a huge amount and our industry has been engaging on nature issues literally from our very beginnings because to mine means to alter nature. So we know a lot about plant and animal species and how we can mine uh, in a way that is uh, least damaging. But now the world has agreed a global biodiversity framework to protect 30% of the world's lands and oceans by 2030. And we need to do a lot of work to show how the growth in mining can be consistent and compatible with that global biodiversity framework goal. In other words, we need to define what it looks like for mining to contribute to a nature positive future. That is a massive priority, particularly in the short term.
0: I've got a couple more questions. Um, if you had a sort of crystal ball, um, if we look forward to 10 years in, in 10 years' time, what success uh, in building trust do you think the mining industry will look like?
1: I actually have a very simple, or maybe some would say simplistic, way of looking at that question, Rob. I think. How will we know when we have built greater trust or when we're there? I think it all comes down to the simple uh, expression, which is we will get the benefit of the doubt. That's all I think we can aim for, is that we get the benefit of doubt from society, that we are operating in the best interests of society. We are operating safely and responsibly. And if something goes wrong, it wasn't because of malpractice, but as a result of an accident. Now, again, to make that w- real, we can actually we do have an example of an industry that does enjoy benefit of the doubt, and we can learn from them. And that's aviation, airplanes. You know, we all get on airplanes all the time. I, for one, uh, it, you know, this job I have to travel a lot. I'm not worried about an airplane cra- crashing whenever I get on one. I sleep very peacefully knowing that this airplane is safe. Now, when you consider the record of aviation, there have been hundreds of deaths almost every year in the last few years of aviation. So on one hand, you might think, hang on, how can I be so sure that this plane isn't going to fall out of the sky when actually planes do fall out of the sky? The reason I have that confidence, Rob, is that when an accident happens with an airplane, there is a full and thorough investigation. They make those results public. Anybody who is at fault is held accountable. National Geographic even does a series, which I quite like watching, called Air Crash Investigations, where you can see what happened, what went wrong and how did they fix it. That uh, that gets the airline industry to a position where I am prepared and you are prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt that actually they've probably taken good care of this aircraft. Wouldn't it be nice if that's the position we were at with mining, which is that people gave mining the benefit of the doubt that we will operate safely and responsibly. And God forbid, but if something went wrong, that the assumption is that we would thoroughly understand what happened fix those mistakes and be very open about what we've done to be better that's that's my dream and i hope it won't take 10 years time but uh, i suspect that's at least how long it'll take
0: yeah and concluding, obviously, we've got a wide range of people listening to these podcasts uh, from around the world, people within mining in di- different disciplines, and hopefully people from outside of our mining industry as well. So I just wonder if you had any sort of final closing comments that you would like to tell our audience, Any, maybe any um, hints or any, any encouragement that you can give uh, to our audience. Um, Around mining and ar- around the work that you do,
1: Rob. I would just say this one thing, man. Uh, you know, some days I wake up in the morning feeling not optimistic. I feel, oh gosh, you know, this challenge feels so big. How are we ever going to uh, solve it? Uh, and we all have those days. And on those days, I remember one thing. I remember a saying that the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. In other words, the future we want already exists in certain pockets and in certain uh, areas. Our task collectively is to make those great aspects of our future the norm everywhere. So if people are involved in anything, whether that's mining or non-mining related, and you see an example of brilliant practice in one area, that is the future that is already here. It's simply not evenly distributed. And any day when you're feeling a little down or I'm feeling a little down, I think about that. I think about these instances of, Individual leadership that people have demonstrated that have shown a different way of operating and a different way of being. And I feel inspired by that and think, okay, so what am I going to do to build that better future today? What am I going to do that if I've got a peek into what the future looks like, that I'm helping make that the norm across every, you know, my own sphere of influence? And that's something that can make this big problem feel something that you can grasp, that you can do something with, because each of us in most moments has the potential to help create that future that we want
0: right thank you very much for your time uh, that was some great content there um and hopefully the 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 people that are listening to this can take take a lot away from that and just think thinking what they're doing in every day in their everyday role within our industry just just take some time out to think think about some of the things that you just that you've just uh um, told us and especially working with obviously some of the top leaders within our industry um and really wish you well in your um it within the group and making making mining obviously better um than what it is from from day to day so um maybe it'd be great if you can come onto the podcast uh, next year and give us some in, in updates on on what you're looking to do well, you're clearly a sucker for punishment, Rob, if that's uh, what you want, but I'd be happy to listen. I really like what you're doing. Thank you. And thanks very much, everybody. for listening. Yeah, no worries. And if our audience obviously wants to follow your work, um, follow what the ICMM are doing, how can they go about do- doing that? What social media platform channels are you on? linkedin and twitter is best uh and then the icmm.com websites
1: uh got got some really good information too but follow icmm uh, and follow me on linkedin and
0: twitter yeah great well wish you for wish you the best for the remainder of the year You're doing really good work i know it's it probably seems a big challenge and it, and it is everything in our industry seems a big challenge but we've got to this stage we can only obviously just keep improving, and as long as I suppose we keep improving day upon day, that's what we can do. But we need all of us to to do that, not just yourself and and a handful of people. So, um, wish you well for the remainder of the year. And audience, I hope you enjoyed that. There's certainly a lot to take away from from this. Um, so please share this episode with people in our industry, no matter what what position you are in within our industry no matter where you are in the world because it applies to all of us and also if you can set give uh, pass this information or this podcast onto others outside of our industry uh, because it's important for people outside of our industry outside of mining to understand what we actually do um, and as Roe mentioned we we haven't got trust in our industry um, but just slowly by um sharing this content sharing this information hopefully we can slowly increase that trust um and it, we all need we all need to do a little bit in our in our day and hopefully by sharing this episode we can start to slowly build some of that trust so um, hope you enjoyed that episode i certainly did and until next time happy mining thank you for listening